Hello and welcome back to Conflicts of Interest, Swiss Peace's academic podcast dedicated to research in peace and conflict. We are absolutely delighted to do another year of podcasting with you. We tailor this podcast to all of you who work in the field of peace and conflict and want to stay up to date with cutting edge research, but you also don't really have time to read full volumes of books. So here's where we come in. I am Dr. Leandra Baez, Swiss Peace Gender Advisor and Senior Researcher, and together with my colleague, Dr. Dana Landau, we browse the books that have been published in the past two years in the field of peace building. And we then pick some of the most original books and on a quarterly basis, meet with the author in this podcast to discuss it so that you get the core argument of the book, the relevance of it for your work, and who knows, maybe you go ahead and also read it. And for this episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Tyler. Mark is a researcher and analyst whose work focuses on legal frameworks applicable to global value change, including with respect to economic activity in conflict and dictatorship. He's held a management positions at the Fafo Institute for Labor and Social Research in Oslo, Norway, and he was advisor on the Council of the Investors Alliance for Human Rights, as well as the Institute for Human Rights and Businesses. But most importantly, which is why we've come together today, uh, Mark wrote the book, War Economies and International Law, Regulating the Economic Activities of Violent Conflict. It just came out last year by Cambridge University Press, and it looks at a completely overlooked fact, and that is Economic activity, of course, goes on during war. It doesn't suddenly stop. And so we have to ask what rules apply, for example, when U.S. troops occupy Syrian oil fields or who is responsible well, when multinational companies use minerals extracted by child laborers in war zones. So this is what Mark's books examines. It examines how international law regulates the war economies that are key to strategic competition between great powers and other armed groups and ultimately help sustain the irregular warfare in today's war zones. So Mark, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Because we'd like our listeners to grasp the relevance of the research we are discussing here, we always start with the feature of the news anchor. We ask our interviewees just one question. When did they connect a news item with their research? So, Mark, when did current events last make you think about your book and why? Um, well, I have to confess that I'm, I'm going to do what all good authors should do, which is claim that all of the uh, most important recent events uh, make me think about uh, the work. Things like the pandemic, for example, have reminded us of the extent to which we're connected through global value chains. And yet how those are double-edged swords, right? They bring us... They bring us closer to people, but they also bring risks closer to us. Um, and they raise real political and ethical dilemmas. And this is you know, a direct parallel to thinking about the ways in which global value chains transect conflict zones and connect us to violence in far off places. And so things like the crisis in Ukraine, the role of gas uh, in the geopolitics of the crisis really points to the role of economic activities in the, in the structures of conflict. And then I guess the, the other thing that has happened recently that has reminded me of, of, uh, of the work on the book was the prosecution recently in Germany of uh, former intelligence officials from Syria 
for their involvement in torture in Syrian prisons. And that, that was a reminder because it's a reminder of the ways that extraterritorial jurisdiction, prosecutions in domestic jurisdictions for international crimes that happened far away are creating liabilities, not just for the perpetrators, but also for those who are involved in enabling those crimes. And that can extend to economic actors, including uh, Western uh, companies who could increasingly find themselves under investigation to the extent that they're involved in those global value chains that connect them up to wars and, and in particular, the perpetration of international activities. So yeah, there's a lot to think about actually when, <laughs> when, when I think about what's happening these days and, and try to relate that to, to the book. Yeah, and that's certainly something I would echo as I was reading it as well. I was like, this is connected to so many things and it really starts already in a in a gripping gripping fashion and i have to cite that first sentence and that is really this book is concerned with an aspect of war that is hidden in plain sight the economic aspects of war they are blindingly obvious they are there in the salaries and upkeep of the fighters deployed in the weapons used and in the survival strategies of course of people who are caught in the war zone and you have numerous um, examples cited there but one which people would be familiar with, right, is Syria. And you say, well, war economies in Syria are the ones that kept the many autonomous insurgent groups going. And they made sure that the different proxies from the US, Syria and Russia and Iranian fighters, um, that they were actually supplied with what you then call are the three economic aspects of warfare, right? They were supplied with wages, weapons, ammunition, and money. We come to that as well. But so before we jump into the details, because I think this is also very strong in the book, is that you really first define what are war economies. So could you tell our listeners very briefly just the definition and also the distinction you make um, war economies for war and in the war? Yeah. So and I think that that's at the heart of the definition is these two understandings of war economies. I mean, war because they are slightly different, right? We we think of war economies traditionally as the economic activities that are involved in generating uh, the capacity to fight. Um, and uh, what we see, though, in practice is that there's sort of two kinds of war economies. And one is the one that I think we most normally associate with the term, which is the defense industry, the large um, uh, arms industries, aerospace industries that are involved in, in really uh, the kind of preparing for war on an industrial scale. And we've lived with this for, for really over 150 years now. Um, and really, it became such an important part, both of, both of national economies and geopolitics uh, in, the, in the 20th century, the whole kind of uh, military industrial complex, uh, as it was called um, in the 1950s by, by President Eisenhower. But the other uh, kind of war, the other uh, war economy is, is not just the, the economic activities involved in preparing for war, but it's the economic activities that occur in the war zone. And so we will talk about, for example, the, the war economy of Syria that we just mentioned. And we actually mean both things. We mean um, uh, what's happening in that economic space in Syria, right? What's happening in the conflict zone? What economic activities are, are underway? What um, uh, activities are controlled by uh, armed groups? Uh, uh, who is uh, smuggling what kind of commodity across what, what 
um, conflict uh, line. Um, but we also mean the preparation for war, the ways in which those groups are using that, uh, in, many, in many cases, informal and very localized um, war economies to actually um, uh, prepare for a conflict, to, as you said, um, uh, to generate the salaries, the money to buy the weapons, um, and, uh, and to do so uh, over, over time. And I mean, you pick, pick your conflict and you will see both of those war economies. Yeah, and for me, really, the, the key sentence that made it, made it clear is when you say it's not just whether economic activity influences mm. armed conflict, but rather how is that you say economic activity is present not just in the motives for war, yeah. which would be that it's all about the oil, but also in its means and methods. Yeah. But what I want to stress for our listeners is really that the original contribution of the book is not just that you show how war economies shape violent conflict, but really also that you show us how since the turn of the century, international law, so in particular talking about humanitarian law, criminal law, human rights law, and the laws governing international peace and security, how all of these have been sites where efforts were made to try and start regulating what you call war economies. So to come back, you say there are three economic components that are key for war. One, to have fighters, two, to have weapons, and three, of course, to have money to pay for both. And so to give our listeners an idea, at least this is how I interpreted the structure of the book, which is divided in two parts. You have a first part where you look at what, what kind of international norms exist that regulate these three economic aspects and how they came about. While in the second part, you only look at fighters and weapons and how their illicit appropriation can count as what you call economic war crimes. And that's been a lot of talking from my side. I'll come to the question. I can, we cannot possibly cover all of these aspects in the conversation. So what I suggest we do is that we look at international norms for fighters and weapons, and then take one example of what you define or can be defined an economic war crime related to labor. So your chapter on weapons highlights three approaches in arms control, disarmament, security, and humanitarianism, and how they led to the arms trade treaty, which is probably familiar to many of our listeners. But you also show that there is still an important gap in the arms trade treaty. So would you mind expanding on these three regulatory approaches to weapons, their development, and the arms trade treaty? Um, yes, I think the, the, with respect to the international regulation of, of weapons, when you think about it, again, it's, that, it's like that most obvious of things in relation, you know, if you want to put the, put the issues of war and economic activity together, it's you know the production of weapons uh, and the um, the trade in weapons that is that is the most obvious in terms of uh, economic activities, and um, I think it's really indicative of the whole field covered by the book that there's only a conventional arms trade treaty that enters into force in 2014. I mean, it's mind-boggling when you think about it, right? But it is perfectly indicative of the extent to which international law. I'm not going to say, I wouldn't say it has ignored the issue. The extent to which states have prevented international law from 
any involvement in what is at the very core of their national security concerns, right? So they don't want people getting in the way of, of how they produce and obtain, and obtain weapons. There's all kinds of really interesting threads, again, from the historical perspective, the ways in which during the Cold War, um, uh, you know, NATO and allied countries coordinated their trade in weapons technology through something called COCOM as a way of excluding trade to the Warsaw Pact countries and preventing them from from obtaining techno weapons tech or other kinds of technologies that were considered strategic. That was an ongoing effort. It wasn't like some sort of uh, um, sanctions uh, regime um, that was imposed uh, on paper, not really enforced. You know, there was a committee that sat in Paris and monitored this stuff and states had to come to the table and uh, discuss why it was that this particular technology needed to be stopped or shouldn't be stopped, for example, given an exemption. It was just an ongoing sort of form of exclusion. Globalization comes along post-Cold War, and that disappears and translates into um, a sort of an attempt at a more collective, um, uh, uh, under the UN framework, attempt to deal still informally with illicit arms transfers. And you get different clusters of kind of soft law or variants of export control regimes, combinations of the two really until you end up with a negotiation um, of the arms trade treaty, which failed under the UN system, under the conventional arms um, regime. There was a bunch of progress through that regime earlier on, but the ultimate uh, treaty um, had to be done independently. And um, there's a researcher, actually a, a researcher here in Oslo, who was, who was a diplomat and part of that process named Guru Nistuuren. And um, she has she has pointed out that you know even though it's called the, the arms trade treaty, it's nothing like a trade treaty. It's not a trade treaty at all. It's kind of like a, an IHL treaty um, because it has all of this uh, state obligations and you know, refers to IHL, refers to human rights and, and so on, um, and places all really all of the regulatory responsibility on states. But the gap that you refer to, <clears throat> and and again it adapts. The, it takes what had developed in the post-Cold War uh, decades through these evolving export control regimes and, and sort of soft law regimes attempting to deal with illicit flows of weapons. It adapts all of that um, and puts it into, uh, or some of it at least, and puts it into treaty form. But the one thing they miss, of course, is the responsibilities of the industry itself. I mean, there's a very good reason for that, which is that, of course, this was happening during a period of neoliberal policy dominance in, of globalization, when, you know, the best kind of regulation was non-regulation, the state shouldn't interfere, et cetera, et cetera. In general, that was the kind of dominant logic of trade bureaucrats, arms bureaucrats, everybody. But what it missed was a late development in, in the business and human rights field, in the corporate accountability field, which by 2011 had developed norms um, that were agreed unanimously by member states at the uh, Human Rights Council. Um, under the UN guiding principles that create responsibilities for companies to respect human rights um, and a very clear operationalization through forms of due diligence. And when you read, if you know that, when you read the ATT text and talk to some of the people involved, you think, you know, it would be such an easy thing just to stick in a clause, right? Which repeated the language of the UN guiding principles and just said, you know what? If you're an arms manufacturer uh, or you're dealing, or especially, frankly, if you're dealing with anything that's kind of dual use, that can be convention, could be used as a conventional weapon, that you would have a 
you know, a responsibility to um, deliver that due diligence as part of, for example, applying for an export uh, license for your for your, your weapons. Um, it would have made the life of, of export control people a lot easier uh, in the sense that they would have had something to relate to other than sort of Google searching um, and uh, would have created a dialogue, crucially, would have created a dialogue between the regulatory authorities uh, and the industry. But allow me, moving on from the part where you talk about regulating weapons to now talk about regulating fighters, right? Which will be probably, again, familiar to many of our listeners, the issue of, you touch upon mercenaries, foreign fighters, and child soldiers. And I leave it to you to pick which one you want to delve into. But please tell us how these forms or one of these forms of mobilization has been regulated, how so, and also where impunity continues today and why. Okay. I think I will go with the mercenaries um, because they're the most fun. And, and here's a classic example of what I was talking about before of actors who uh, we kind of think of as, as both really old, right? Everybody's heard of mercenaries. The mercenaries are, you know, as old as war, which is true. Um, but somehow they're also really new because even though we have these various um, private security companies running around, they really only took off after the second world, after excuse me after the Cold War, um, and the the question the question and and especially um, you know around uh, the turn of the century, and and so the kind of question is well if they're so old where did they go during that kind of where were they before the end of the Cold War because they're they were not a massive industry before the Cold War, uh, and after that they become a multi billion dollar industry now one of the reasons they become a multi-billion-dollar industry is sheer supply. There's a massive drawdown in um, soldiers, <laughs> literally military personnel, um, globally, from both sides of the Cold War divide and and from uh, developing countries. Um, and uh, so there's a there's literally a sort of a glut of people out there of uh, of what the sociologists like to call coercion specialists. Um, and uh, and um, uh, a labor market forms, uh, and they find business. Um, and increasingly, that takes on a corporate form. And so a lot of the writings about mercenaries take on this, try to distinguish private security companies from mercenaries based on their corporate form. Okay, fine. But in practice, they're really very much the same the same thing. Much of the 20th century, you know, there was there, there's various international legal instruments that um, deal with mercenaries. But the reality was they got shut down in the early days of state formation in Europe um, by states that really uh, really didn't have the ability to finance them much anymore because pillage and plunder, which had been used for centuries as the basis for financing uh, mercenaries, were becoming harder and harder to sustain. Um, the real Im important elements of uh, military of war fighting became increasingly industrialized, and these kind of um, uh, mercenary uh, actors didn't have the same access to those um, to those technologies that, that states had. Certainly, not the capital to invest in them that states did, and so they sort of they were eventually banned in in many countries over the course of the 18th and 19th century, and they really didn't make a big big comeback until after the after the end of the Cold War. And so when you look at that, now there are exceptions, of course, there's, there's UN documents of uh, banning, there's a working group on mercenaries. All of these are an attempt to deal with 
a period after the Second World War, during the decolonization period, when there were mercenary activities by, in particular, former colonial powers who were kind of outsourcing attempts to retain access over natural resources in newly independent uh, countries, in particular in, in Africa. And so that was the core of the phenomenon. And there were attempts to uh, grapple with that um, by the UN um, uh, throughout really the second half of the, of the 20th century. But some of the definitions weren't particularly well thought out and they were very difficult uh, to enforce. Um, uh, and there was very little interest on the part of the Europe, in particular European powers, uh, in, in uh, enforcing them. So what happens in order to deal with the kind of, I guess which is fair to say, a kind of explosion, post-Cold War explosion in the phenomenon of mercenaries? Um, a couple of things happened. Well, one of the interesting, one of the interesting things is it's a little bit different than than the arms trade response because in fact what happens is precisely a sort of corporate engagement strategy um, led, uh, I might say, by uh, the Swiss, um, who were involved uh, in talking to the industry and trying to get a kind of industry standard, right, an industry agreement about how they were going to uh, manage this uh, burgeoning industry, which, which the argument went at the time was unregulated. Now, it's only unregulated if you don't consider them mercenaries. Um, uh, the, I mean, as an industry, yes, it was unregulated, but the, but the phenomenon of, of, um, of mercenaries operating in, in war was not old, and there were the, the laws of war were there to control them. But yes, as an industry, they were not, uh, they were not regulated. They, they began this, this process, even though, frankly, if you'd sat down with the judge advocates general of the major NATO powers, for example, and tried to pull in Russia and South Africa and a couple of other key sources of these mercenary companies, uh, and simply agreed that you were going to apply um, uh, domestic legislation concerning the laws of war to those bodies, to those companies um, of, of uh, private security companies, you could have solved it pretty quickly. But instead, what they went for was a, was a model of self-regulation, which has been embodied in the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Companies, where they commit to respecting international humanitarian law and uh, human rights. Um, and that was married with a, with, a, with a kind of declaration by governments that they would uh, refer to similar standards in attempting to regulate them. And so there's a kind of soft law regime in place, and there's a statement by um, countries that in principle can be under, read to understand that they will prosecute private military actors for their violations. Yeah, fascinating, really fascinating. But also to see that there are still really important regulatory gaps, or as you say, prosecuting gaps, because you could if you wanted. But so lastly, to turn from, we've talked about weapons, we've talked about fighters, um, and we haven't touched upon at all at the at the aspect of money, which is necessary to to have both. But I do want to come to one aspect of this second part of the book where you speak about economic war crimes, which I hadn't heard before. And in particular, you you mentioned slavery and enslavement. And you mentioned that this can entail different forms, of course. It could be forced labor. It could be 
forced labor, both in militarized and non-militarized form, but even sexual exploitation. And so to give our listeners really just a brief example, I found it really interesting how you contrasted the case of forced labor in Nazi Germany, which is what many listeners would probably associate with, and how that would actually that was actually judged differently in Nuremberg as opposed to the International Criminal Tribunal of former Yugoslavia, where forced labor was judged differently because of how it was assessed as having been central to the to the warfare. So, would you mind telling our listeners a bit more? about that? I think the main difference was the, uh, uh, is, is more on the factual side. I think, the, I think what you see in both cases in a, is an attempt to grapple with a fundamental norm of, of international law with respect to war, which is that coerced labor is unacceptable. And you see that manifested in different ways. Um, and uh, you, see the, you see courts grapple with the different ways that they manifest themselves, but try to apply the same norm. Um, there's a but with with respect to this difference between um, the sort of post-war tribunals and the, and the and the latter ones, I think one of the, the the crucial differences does have to do with the difference I talked about right at the beginning of this uh, discussion, which was between the sort of large structural systems of industrial preparation for war versus the sort of more informal, irregular economies that happen in the war zone. In this, the, you know, um, uh, the Nazi German regime built an entire system of slave labor that was quite complex with different kinds of slave labor using both concentration camp labor as well as prisoners of war as uh, labor um and and that that system was described um and criminalized by the the, the post-war war tribunals and the economic actors that were prosecuted for their participation in that of course there were um, Nazi officials that were prosecuted for their involvement in that and their, their role in that. But there were also um, economic actors that were prosecuted for their participation in it. Companies, that in, 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 or I should say rather, the individual managers of companies um, who were the decision makers um, in their use of, of slave labor. And one of, the, one of the things you see is that the, this kind of um, system-wide pervasive creation of forced labor um, uh, uh, the, the ways in which companies were both coerced into using forced labor, but also actively sought to use forced labor, and the court trying to distinguish between the two and trying and, and, and acquitting those where they felt there was evidence that they, um, um, for lack of a better phrase, had no choice but to use forced labor, and others who seemed to actually take an active, where there was evidence that they took an active participation. So that you know, sought out forced labor or sought to help the, 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 the forced labor system in some way, both of those usually. So the, the, that in the sort of bigger systemic picture is sort of the origins of prosecuting enslavement in a, uh, as a crime against humanity, right? It comes from that, that uh, history. Despite the fact that you have over the, over the subsequent decades, you have in the treaty documents and in the normative discussions you have a mixing of forced labor and slavery in those documents and discussions, yeah? where forced labor in its militarized form kind of gets um, blended with the notion of slavery. And that goes right back to those post-war tribunals where they, they dealt with both at kind of the same time. And to a certain extent, that, could, that um, uh, continues today. But you get, you get strange um, um, uh, uh, uncertainty 
by some of the tribunals. So, for example, in the um, Yugoslav tribunal, uh, the prosecutor felt the need to kind of prosecute both, to charge both at exactly the same time against exactly the same person in the same case in order to make sure that they weren't somehow, um, they didn't sort of slip out on a technicality that it wasn't exactly the right charge. Great. And as you can probably see, we haven't, like, we, ha- we were not un- unable to go into detail with so many other aspects that you you tackle in the book. So we really just recommend to actually go and read it. So we are approaching the end, I'm afraid, and we always round that off with the policy window. Now, what is the policy window? Well, it is a special feature of two minutes where we ask our book authors to imagine they are standing in front of 200 decision makers. It could be the World Economic Forum or why not the UN General Assembly? And we encourage them to imagine that they have the unique opportunity to bring home the key messages from the researchers and tell decision makers what they should consider as they move forward. So, Mark... Now is your time to shine and we really strictly apply Uh two minutes. So what would you tell these decision makers? Right. Um, I think I would say that um, the risks to their citizens, both their, their, their their own citizens and citizens far away from warfare are not simply the risks of, of violence. They're increasingly the risks from hybrid forms of warfare, hybrid tactics, which include um, the economic. And those are not just risks to, uh, you know, policymakers are concerned with how that's affecting their own citizens, but they also need to be concerned with the ways that those risks in far off places are engaging their own citizens, in particular, um, their own companies who may be intersecting with the same value chains um, that different commodities um, are being laundered into global value chains, uh, or they may be participating directly either through foreign direct investment or because they're private security companies or large uh, technology companies. And, you know, in in an environment in which we, I think, clearly face new geopolitical challenges that cross over into things like national security uh, concerns about emerging uh, technologies. We need to find ways to collaborate. We need to coordinate the way we regulate business at home for its activities abroad. And we need to agree with other states on the rules that allow this to happen in a fair way. And I guess the message to them would be, look, fortunately we have norms in place that can guide us. Um, in particular with respect to the, the myriad ways that economic activities help to sustain wars uh, and dictatorships and the ways in which we are involved in helping to sustain wars and, and dictatorships. And we can use these norms. We can use these norms as a basis for international cooperation to turn the tide of conflict to, to um, uh, stem this kind of fragmentation uh, and at the geopolitical level. Uh, that increasingly begins to feel like a race to the bottom. So it's not so much about developing new norms, but actually collaborating and and applying existing ones. 
Thank you so much for, for this pitch, Mark, for also all the discussion previously, and most of all for having been with us and for having written such an interesting book that we really recommend to everyone. Well, thank you very much for having me and, and thank you for the, for the kind words. It's been a pleasure. Our pleasure. So, dear listeners, if we've made you curious, then please find your way to Cambridge University Press and buy the book War Economies and International Law Regulating the Economic Activities of Violent Conflict. Thank you all for listening. Since we've started, we've received much feedback that has really kept us going. So please do not hesitate to reach out to us via the website. Let us know what you think or tell us also what book you've had on your reading list for a while and would love us to cover. If it's a monograph and was published in the past two years, we'll gladly consider it. Otherwise, you can also motivate us by liking and subscribing to the series Conflicts of Interests on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And this is, of course, also the place where you'll find previous episodes. For example, you might want to find out why listing armed groups as terrorists doesn't necessarily help a peace process. In that case, check out episode three. This was it from us. Thank you very much for being with us. This podcast was delivered to you by our producer, Sanjali Jabarti, and me, Leandra Baez, and we will be back soon.